You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing shall, I'm sorry, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastal lands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading and uh, sermon text this morning is from the book of Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let's pray together. Father, we call you Father. And there's so many implications of that. That we come together from different nations. We come together from different socioeconomic backgrounds. We come together um, from all kinds of different stories. And yet we gather in this room together and all of us call upon you as Father. So God, I pray that you would ground us in that reality. I pray, God, that that would become pervasive for us as we perceive and understand what it is that we are as the church, as a people. It would shape our understandings as we look to one another, as we see one another, as we interact with one another, as we eat with one another, as we worship with one another. God, that we all call upon you as Father. So help us, O oh God, to hear this text and help us, O oh God, to be instructed from this text and help us, O oh God, to be given joy from this text and help us, O oh God, to be given endurance through this text. And most of all, God, may we abound with hope because of the promises of this text. In your name we pray, amen. Rome found the Christian church threatening for two fundamental reasons. Um, there, were, uh, there were other religious sects that the Roman Empire allowed to coexist alongside. In fact, for the most part, um, Rome was probably most skilled at basically taking any religion you wanted to, um, absorbing it into its pantheon of gods and its pantheon of religion, um, and pretty quickly subsuming all other cultures within the Roman culture. So if you were off worshiping Joe in Eastern Europe, and uh, Rome came, invaded, took over your land in Eastern Europe, um, they wouldn't force you to stop worshiping Joe. They would just say, hey, look, here's Joe. Joe is next to all these other gods. And Joe here is next to the emperor, and so you should worship Joe. Joe loves the emperor, clearly, because we just conquered you. Um, So you, as you worship Joe, you should also serve and worship the emperor. Rome was very, very good at absorbing um, every other religion. It found Christianity, um, and for other reasons, Judaism, for similar reasons, Judaism, um, deeply disturbing. Um, It could not subsume, it could not... Um, cause the Christian church to acquiesce under um, and into the kind of Roman pantheon of gods. And the Christians stood strong and said, we will not worship Caesar. We will not worship the emperor. We will worship only Jesus Christ. Um, This was troubling to the Romans, particularly since they worshiped Jesus Christ as the one who was raised from the dead and the one who was killed as a traitor by the Romans. Um, This created immediate and pressing political issues. And one of the most um, other heinous crimes committed by Christians um, uh, in, in alignment with this lack of loyalty um, or allegiance to the Roman pantheon, the Roman emperor, and the Roman purposes um, was the Christians' insistence upon um, fellowshipping together, eating meals together, um, that crossed all sorts of socioeconomic lines which were not permitted to be crossed um, within Roman culture. You see, when the church would gather, when they would gather for their meals, for their communion meals, in which they would worship Jesus Christ, um, in which they would gather and break bread together and drink wine together, sitting at the same table as peers, even worse in their language, as brothers and sisters. We're slaves, we're the poor, we're the rich, 
were government officials, were Roman generals, were Roman soldiers, were the educated philosophers, were the uneducated farmers. Everyone gathered at one table, and perhaps even worse of all, um, Jews and Romans together, all sharing a meal, all breaking bread together, all deferring to one another in love, celebrating the absolute authority and reign of Jesus over against the Roman Empire and over against Caesar. This was a threat that could not be passed over. I, I mean, here is the full breadth of society, gathered in the name of Jesus, eating as one family, under his lordship, under his reign, believing that he had conquered sin and death, that he'd been raised on the third day after being put to death in the most despicable way imaginable by the Romans themselves. You see, there was something at the very heart of early Christianity um, that had welcome and hospitality, receiving one another, bearing with one another, walking together in love that was essential to the very nature of what it meant to be the people of God in the midst of the world. Um, it, It comes up again and again and again in the New Testament. You can't get far into any practical section of any New Testament letter or or even get very far in Jesus' own commands to his people where he gives a a direct and, 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 and clear command to the people of God, love one another. Now, to be sure, if, those, if you're, you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, maybe you're outside of the church, outside of faith, um, there are all, also commands about practicing hospitality towards outsiders. Um, but that's not what the focus of the text is on today, and it's frankly not um, the focus of what made the church unique in its own day. You see, what was central to be commended to and commanded of God's people was that they defer to, they love with great sacrificial love and objectivity, we'll talk about that in a minute, the people of God in the church, that they would, as Paul says in this text, receive one another, welcome one another, in the same way that we have been welcomed and received by Jesus Christ. There was at the heart of, and there should be at the heart of, the people of God, um, not cool programming, um, not whatever the latest whiz-bang thing is in worship, not radical experiences, not even centrally amazing teaching. Although, I'm just joking. <laughs> At the center of the life of the church was a people crossing all socioeconomic bounds, crossing educational boundaries, crossing um, racial boundaries, crossing all boundaries that said, we will love one another, we will receive one another as Christ has received us. Um, This is what laid at the center of the life of the church. It was one of the clear evidences in the midst of the Roman Empire that made the church absolutely intolerable. They refused to divide along the lines that society dictated to which they were supposed to divide along. They ate food together. They drank wine together. They didn't segment into different peer groups. 
They ate, they drank, they sang, they confessed the lordship of Jesus over everything. And this united them. So, what sort of welcome was this welcome as Paul begins to call for this kind of welcome and he then ground, he first is going to call for this kind of welcome and then ground that welcome in, in a handful of things. And I want you to observe a handful of things about the nature of this welcome. First, it's a realistic welcome. This is no fanciful kind of children's cartoon welcome. This doesn't look out at the world, at all of you, and say, you should meet all of these people and learn to delight in their idiosyncrasies. This doesn't say you should look at all these people and feel guilty when they annoy you. It doesn't say you should look out at all these people and when they have weird views of things or strange conspiracy theory explanations for things or they just have terrible theology, you should look at them and instead learn to see the beauty and the diversity of their views. It's not Paul's argument in this text. Listen to his language. He says that we should bear with one another. That you have to endure one another. He prays that they would have endurance. Which seems to imply that dealing with you will need to come with some strengthening from God himself to endure you. He says... (laughs) That was mean. Traveled with Ryan this week and he endured me. He says that we shouldn't work to please ourselves. There will be something likely unpleasing in having to deal with other people. I I want you to think about this. Uh, Most of you were very careful about who you married. Did a great deal of research to make sure the person you married, if you're married here, was someone that you would mostly enjoy. In fact, that's one of the questions I ask When a fella comes to me and says, hey, I don't know if I should get married, one of the questions I ask is, well, do you enjoy being with her? Is her presence pleasing to you? Do you find conversation with her engaging? Is this someone that you would like to be with for a really long time? A lot. Like over and over again, like every day, there she is. Like, is that what you want? Inevitably, they say yes. Never had someone get married to a person for whom their answer to that question was no. I actually find her rather annoying and I don't like to spend time with her. Um, And yet, one of the most surprising things, I'm sure most of you have experienced, I of course have not, um, is that once you get married, you find that being together, like just doing life together, like dealing with things like dishes Old ketchup from the night before. The smell that comes from that. It's one of my least favorite smells, second only to steamed broccoli. How hard it is to be married to someone that you really like a lot. I'm sure, for some of you. Maybe a handful of you. Not me. But, um, like, 
how hard it, like it actually requires endurance, strength, bearing with someone's weaknesses. Like you go into marriage often kind of a little bit blind to the weaknesses because they're just starstruck by this person. Yes, you know, theoretically they have sin. Theoretically they have weaknesses. Theoretically, all theoretically, they'll eventually have some problems that will come up, whatever. But this person's amazing. Virtually sinless and perfect and strong. They're strong. They're great. Then you get just a few months in and you realize this is hard. It's like really, really hard. All of the little differences come up. All of the weaknesses express themselves. Now, what Paul says is, this is exactly what life in the church will be like. Now, you don't have to wake up every day and see me. That would be, <laughs> that would be weird. Um, it would be an overbearing church in some ways. <laughs> but you do have to come and gather with the saints to worship. And there are people in this room that are just weird. There are. People in this room that have weaknesses, that are strange. They don't sing real good. They have odd theories on where things come from and how things should work. Um, They don't like meat. They think meat is bad. They do like meat. In fact, they insist on only eating meat all the time. In fact, they're doing some sort of claim that this is some sort of ancient diet. They call it paleo. Um, like, like there's, there's people in this room that you're called to meet with, to worship with, to eat with, to gather during the week and pray for. Like we are called together in a community. And what Paul says is this is going to be hard. It's going to require bearing with weaknesses. It's going to require endurance. You're going to need at times, really, you're going to need outside divine encouragement to deal with these people. And so the welcome that God calls us to, the welcome that Paul is describing in this verse, is not some sort of pie in the sky. Hey, go ahead and pick and be very selective in your group so that you're only choosing people kind of who, who you can get along with, that there's no rough edges on. They don't do anything that makes you uncomfortable. They're not ever awkward. They kind of fit perfectly within your train of thought, your, your stream of thought in the nature of the world. And they love to talk about theology as much as you like to talk about theology. Or they love to talk about politics in the exact same way you like to talk about politics. Um, uh, whatever the thing, the particular thing may be, he, he says, that's not what the church is. What the church is, is that you are called together from all kinds of crazy, different backgrounds, wild stories, all kinds of different ways that you've been formed and malformed, all kinds of different sins and anxieties and fears and and troubles. And his call is welcome one another. As you do so, you will bear with one another. You will endure one another. You will need encouragement. You will seek to please them not yourself. So the first thing to know about this kind of welcome is it's a realistic welcome. You've got to deal with real people. Um, And and it should be marked by a a kind of sacrificial pursuit of the objective good of the person that you welcome or one another. Um, There's a word that's repeatedly used here in the ESV. You see it in verse 3 in describing the work of Jesus. 
It talks about it that we should not seek to please ourselves. This word does not mean kind of emotional satisfaction. Um, that's kind of how we tend to use the word please. Uh, the, the word actually um, is used again and again in the Greek to refer to uh, meeting the actual needs of, whether spiritual needs or physical needs, or, or um, meeting the actual needs of the weak. And so there is, um, as we bear with one another, as we endure one another, we should be seeking after the objective good or meeting the objective needs of um, those that we welcome. And so as this is a realistic welcome, it's also an objective welcome. Um, there are times in which pleasing another person will be deeply unpleasing to them. Like calling them to faith in Jesus, calling them to repent of sin, calling them to walk in faithfulness and obedience to all that Jesus is. I'm calling them to show up for church on Sundays and worship King Jesus, calling them to, to work on their marriage in ways they don't want to work on their marriage, calling them to, 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 to fidelity to the commands of God will oftentimes not feel very emotionally satisfying to them. And yet we as a people are to seek for one another the objective good, the, the, the meeting of the needs of those in this community. That we are to bend towards and to seek to serve others, to serve one another. And while oftentimes it won't be emotionally satisfying, it, it will always seek to sustain, to build up to call people deeper into hope in God, to know his love, to know his welcome, to know that he receives them, that he forgives them, that he loves them, that he sings over them to do them good. So this welcome is a realistic welcome. It's an objective welcome. I mean, I think of the objective welcome and and the... I thought about marriage with the first one. I thought about the remarkable amount of intentionality required to raise children. Like some of you right now are with little ones and you're looking at the teenage years and going, oh, then, then things will be easy because they can put on their own seatbelt. You don't have to cook all their lunches. They'll make better lunches than you ever could. Um, you don't have to do all the other extra work, like all that stuff we put aside. You don't have to bend over to get to the third row in the van to get the car seat plugged in where you can't breathe anymore. I don't know if you've suffered through that. All of that will be over and my children will be teenagers and they'll just need the occasional bit of input, kind of steering them in the right direction. It'll just be so easy. Easy peasy. Um, let me just tell you, there's a remarkable amount of intentionality that God requires of you as a parent that does not go away. I, 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 in fact, could make the argument that it gets more intense, more difficult, because it's not so direct. Like with a three-year-old, you can say, pick up the peas off the floor. With a 15-year-old, you have to say something uh, different. I mean, I guess if Hayes threw 16-year-old threw peas on the floor, I would just tell him to pick them up. But um, you have all kinds of other indirect inputs. You're trying to 
walk them, lead them into wisdom, not just trying to keep them from doing the wrong thing. Um, but like, in other words, there, there's an amazing amount of intentionality that goes into cultivating um, a, 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 an objectively good, welcoming, pursuing um, the objective, real needs of your children. And so it must be as well in the church. Now, you're not people's dads or moms in this church, unless you actually are their dads or moms in this church, but the same sort of intentionality, the same sort of like, I want to pursue this person and welcome this person and pursue the good of this person and discern the needs of this person. And um, are are there things that that I can do to help them, to serve them, to care for them? Um, In other words, relationships in the church, um, for them to be objective in the way that Paul describes here, um, that they actually have to be intentional. And intentional, not just with people that you find easy or most comfortable, but intentional with those whom you find the most weak, the most difficult to bear with, the ones that require the most endurance. So in the church, we have a realistic welcome, we have an objective welcome, and then we have the promise that you will need encouragement. Here ensconed in scripture, Paul prays they would be encouraged. The scriptures themselves would lead to their encouragement, which is to say um, this work will be discouraging at times. Life in community will be discouraging at times. People leave churches all the time, not, not because they disagree with the theology, um, not because they, uh, they, they fundamentally opposed to kind of the orthodoxy or the cultural orthodoxy of the church. Um, they leave churches all the time because they have discouraging interactions with people in the church. They don't like the way that person said that. They don't like the strong opinion of that person. They don't like that that person reads that kind of book or sings that kind of music or just is odd. And so they grow discouraged and rather seeking to endure in the midst of that discouragement, they leave. I think this is one of the reasons why really large churches are at times very popular in our day. Because they're structured in such a way as that you never really have to deal with people. You can show up, Sit in the back in a dark room. Never talk to anybody except for the person who handed you something when you walked in. Then you can turn around and leave as soon as the service is over because it's just the gathering of a big crowd for a big experience. You can kind of choose to engage to whatever degree you want to choose to engage. But God calls us into a work with people, into a life with people, into a welcome with people that's pursuing an objective end, namely the glory of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the joy of God, hope in God. And to get there will be hard. It will involve bearing with one another, enduring one another, being patient with one another. And there will be times at which we'll be discouraging to one another. You'll talk to that person in your parish and you'll leave and just be floored that they said what they said. You'll go onto social media and see somebody post something you just think is madness. And the encouragement of Jesus and the encouragement of 
through Jesus through Paul in this text is not to bail. And it's not to say that like it doesn't matter. It's to say it matters and I'm going to endure, I'm going to bear with, I'm going to seek encouragement in my relationship with this person. I'm going to pursue their objective good. I'm not going to walk away because I need encouragement. And so, what remains, starting in verse 8 especially, I want to look and see at what Paul grounds this kind of life in. In other words, what he gives us in these verses is not just a command, like, hey, go do this. Go work really hard at it. He actually takes these commands and he grounds them in um, a, a certain understanding of the work of, of, of God, the promises of God, and in particular, the work of Jesus. So I want us to look at um, these, the, the way that he grounds this, the way that he shapes it, so that it would become an anchor for us as we seek to live the kind of life together that he describes here. First, he calls us to consider how Christ himself has welcomed us. Verse seven, he says explicitly, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In verse three, he uses an example, quoting Psalm 69, nine. Um, it says, for Christ did not please himself or did not seek to meet his own needs, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so for, for us to be the kind of people who are shaped this way, who pursue these kinds of ends together, welcoming one another, enduring one another, bearing with one another's burdens, the very first thing Paul calls it to, calls us to, he calls us to anchor ourselves in seeing and believing and rehearsing over and over and over again, which is why it's central to our worship every week. The welcome of Jesus Christ. Consider how he has welcomed us. And Paul says elsewhere, not many of you were godly, not many of you were rich, not many of you were educated, not many of you, um, 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 and he describes their, their negative behavior, many of you did all of these things, these wicked things, living in sexual immorality and idolatry um, and, and greed and envy and all of these other things, that so, were, um, so were many of you. And yet Christ has welcomed us. And so the root and anchor of this thing is that Christ has welcomed us. A people coming from all kinds of different sin and all kinds of different backgrounds, still struggling with all kinds of different addictions, um, uh, still waging war against the flesh, still waging war against that which would destroy us and destroy our neighbors. Christ has and continues to again and again and again welcome us. It's one of the goals and the purposes of our call to worship every week is that we don't initiate with God, but God himself um, calls us to himself. He welcomes us every single week. He doesn't discriminate based on how good or bad your week was. He calls us to himself. And, and then quoting the 69, Psalm 69, 9, verse 3, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
Paul's here writing to Gentile Christians in Rome. Um, and one of his main purposes in writing the book of Romans um, is that they will welcome back into the church Jewish Christians who'd been expelled several years before. Now to do so is to accept into their ranks um, a race of people that were despised by everyone in Rome. Um, no one in Rome liked Jews. They dressed weird. They wouldn't go to all the parties. They wouldn't eat the right things. They had strange political views. Um, they were constantly causing trouble down there in Jerusalem. Um, there, there was all kinds of problem with the Jews. And so there was all kinds of reasons in Rome to dis- disassociate from Jewish Christians. What's fascinating is in other parts of Rome, um, there were all kinds of reasons why Christians would want to behave outwardly in ways that could associate them with Jews. But in Rome, the problem was the exact opposite. How do we disassociate ourselves from this people that are largely seen as evil and a corrupting influence um, on the Roman Empire? They're they're politically poisonous, socially poisonous. They're reproached. So Paul calls upon Psalm 69 to tell us about the work of Jesus, where he takes upon himself the reproach given to the people of God. That what should mark us as a people is that we take on the reproach that's thrown upon others. That's the kind of welcome grounded and rooted in the glorious proclamation and faith that Jesus Christ has borne our reproach for us. Second, consider the promises of God in the scriptures themselves. He says that the scriptures were given to instruct us And that instruction should lead to endurance. It should lead to encouragement as we bear with one another, as we walk with one another, as we carry one another. And then he goes on, starting in verse 9 and then all the way through verse 12, he lists a series of Old Testament references um, from the Psalms, from Isaiah, and all of them essentially call to remembrance, call to to mind um, certain promises of God. Those promises generally involve two things um, everywhere that they're cited. So if you go back to these texts, um, just a quick clue. Anytime you're reading the New Testament and it cites the Old Testament, it's not enough just to look at that verse. You see, the way that uh, a first century Jew would have read the Old Testament or quoted the Old Testament is, is never just this verse kind of ripped out of context um, and then used over here. He, he would have had in mind, Paul would have had in mind, and he wants to call our attention to um, the, the whole scope of the text that he's quoting. As he quotes the Psalms and he quotes Isaiah um, in these verses, um, what all of those Psalms and that that passage from Isaiah have in common um, is a vision in which God brings destruction and, and, and judgment on the wicked, on those who oppose the people of God. And as he does so, he begins to gather to himself all the nations of the earth. That all the Gentiles would be gathered into and with the people of God, giving thanks to him for his mercy, praising him as their father, worshiping them as they they are grafted into the people of God. In other words, two things simultaneously that Paul thinks should ground our hope. In the midst of a world where we should expect to face opposition, we should expect to... to have real enemies that God's called us to love or we should face actual real painful um, 
conflict, the thing that is to ground us such that we can still, um, still pursue the good of one another, the objective good of one another, that we can endure both external suffering and just the, the pain of dealing with you, <laughs> is this glorious promise. God will destroy the wicked and the result of it will be that the nations of the earth will worship Jesus. And, and here in this text and the texts that are being quoted here is no like small, barely discernible group of people from all the nations of the earth. As if the great hope of the gospel is um, that there'd be someone somewhere from every tongue, tribe, and nation who worships Jesus. Now the vision here is that we might look at what God does and yes, the wicked will be judged. Yes, the enemies of God people will be condemned but the way that we would describe it um, upon seeing it in the last day is the whole world has been saved. God has redeemed a people from all the nations of the earth. The the, the nations themselves have gathered together to bring praise and honor and glory for the grace and the mercy of King Jesus. Now no, here is an expansive vision, an expansive hope. Not of a small little people eking out a survival in the midst of a world that's going crazy, but rather a church that conquers the nations of the earth and they gather in the presence of God to worship him forever and ever and ever. This is the instruction given to us from the scriptures. And it presents us with challenges. Because it means gathering people from that background and that background and with those views. With those fears and those anxieties and from all the nations of the earth all thrown together in the midst of the people of God to worship Jesus and Jesus alone slowly over the whole course of a lifetime together being made holy, being built up having their sins not only cleansed, but but dealt with and put away. And and when you live in a community like that, you need the encouragement of what God's up to in your midst. You need instruction again as to why is this hard? Why do I have to deal with him again? Like I really have to eat with him one more time? Like you you need instruction in that moment. You need encouragement in that moment. Um, And and what he gives to us is yes, a vision of Jesus and the glory of the gospel itself in which he welcomes us, but also he gives to us the, the, the global glorious promise of God is that this is what God is up to. That the nations would worship him. That we would look in the last day at what God has accomplished and say, the whole world worships him. This is what God is up to. And then last, I don't know, I don't know what you think God is like, what his emotional life is like. But I'm comforted by verse 13. May the God of hope. Is this how you think of God? 
Maybe as you're dealing with a wayward child, maybe as you're dealing with a difficult marriage, maybe as you're dealing with a difficult roommate, maybe as you're dealing with just the the difficulty of being maybe in this church or in your particular parish, which we have another parish I'd love to tell you about if that's your situation. (laughs) Just joking. Like, Like, I I know in my life, through various situations, I can feel very discouraged. Like, this person's going nowhere. It it, it is a great help to me to know that God isn't. God doesn't look at your marriage with discouragement. He looks at it with hope. God doesn't look at your child with discouragement. He looks at that child. He looks at her or him with hope. He doesn't look at the state of our culture with discouragement. He looks at it with hope, with purpose. He doesn't look at the political insanity of our day with discouragement or just kind of bottled up rage. He looks at all of it with hope. See, the sovereign God of the universe is always, everywhere, at work, in the midst of all kinds of wild circumstances to to bring to pass his great and glorious purpose that the nations would be saved, that the nations would sing of his grace, that he would be worshipped everywhere by everyone. What might hope look like in your marriage or in your friendships? That friend you're just discouraged by. Maybe it's been a disagreement. Maybe it's just been um, one of those awkward places where you just can't talk to each other anymore and you're not even sure why. Oh, what would it look like to abound in hope? What would it look like to abound in hope for our church? To to see at the root of what God has promised to do in this church um, is to welcome people as Christ has welcomed us, um, to, to hold faithfully to what is true and beautiful and good, that we'd be filled with all manner of joy and endurance, um, that that would spill over into the way that we love one another and care for one another and welcome one another and welcome outsiders into this community. Oh, that that would mark us. Uh, People who aren't marked by the, the cynicism of our age. Well, I think there's much to admire um, within the conservative movements uh, within our society. One of the things that I struggle with is the cynicism. Christianity is not cynical. It is marked deeply by hope. It aims at hope. Do not be a cynic. Know the heart of men. Know that there's all kinds of wickedness in the world and anchor yourself in the hope that the sovereign Lord and King and Master of everything is working all things that he would be worshipped and glorified by the nations. Even this one. Don't be a cynic. It's sin.
what it would look like to be marked by hope as we consider our city, and where God would be bringing our city, our state, and our nation for the nations of the earth, that we would look out at the world and not just discern all the problems, not just discern all of the godlessness, not just, by, 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 but you need to see that stuff. But as you see that stuff, stuff, be asking the question, what must God be up to? As he brings the Gentiles to praise him for his grace his mercy. As he brings the Chinese to worship him for his mercy. As he brings the Americans to praise him for his mercy. As he brings the Europeans to praise him for his mercy and the Africans and the Japanese and all of the nations of the earth to bow the knee to King Jesus in joy. Read the news that way. And so may this mark us as a people. As we consider the welcome of Jesus. As we consider that he bore our reproach for us. As we consider the promises of God guaranteed and accomplished in the coming of Jesus the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus and the ongoing reign and rule of Jesus, may we be marked by joy and peace, abounding, overflowing in hope. It's not just pie in the sky, things will work out, but hope that's grounded in faith. Faith that believes the promises of God, faith that anchors itself to the work of Jesus. And so in turn, we welcome one another as we've been welcomed by Jesus Christ. Let's pray and prepare for communion. And so Father, we come to this table welcomed here by Jesus Christ. Welcomed to his body and blood, welcomed to this bread and this wine, welcomed to feast together in your presence. Not a people who've had to earn our way here, but a people who've been welcomed So God, may this kind of welcome mark us as a people. May it shape us. May may it be infectious in us as a people. In your name we pray, amen.